Hello, all you wonderful listeners. This is Julie Baumgartner, and welcome to another episode of Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner, where we talk with specialists in their field of expertise to encourage, motivate, and equip those with big dreams to rise up and achieve their goals. Our guests bring valuable tips and resources to apply to your own life and go forward on your path to success. Our guests have a following either because of their expertise, have given back and invested in their communities, or have engaged in relationship building contributing to their success. Today on Rise Up, we have a licensed professional counselor, speaker, teacher, and writer. His counseling experience includes working in residential treatment, community counseling, and private practice. He is certified in emotionally focused therapy, a research-based model of therapy that focuses on restoring relationships by strengthening core connections between loved ones. His approach focuses on repairing past wounds that are interfering with relationship health. Creating a safe, supportive, accepting atmosphere is the core of his work. He and his wife, Tanya, are the owners of Relationship Solutions, a counseling practice located in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Today, we welcome Ben Story. Let's talk about terms and labels when we talk about mental issues. Hmm. Man, this is a very in-depth conversation we're about to launch into. Hope you've got a couple hours. We do. Okay, good. First of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I've had a chance to listen to a few of your other interviews, and I really like what you're doing here. So thank you for what you're doing. I, I think I've experienced mental health treatment on both sides of the couch. I've been uh, a patient myself, and then I've also been a provider and a practitioner. And so I think in just the, both experiences, you know, when someone gives you a label, whether that label is attention deficit or, or major depression or generalized anxiety or maybe something more severe, Mental health is weird in that if the doctor says I have the flu, I don't necessarily go home and start redefining who I am or, or, or interpreting you know, how I see myself because I have that cluster of symptoms. But when the doctor says, Ben, you've got all the criteria for uh, a major depressive disorder, we need to talk about options, all of a sudden those symptoms somehow speak to who I am or my character or my personality or even my identity and personally, as a counselor, I don't think that that's true. I think they're symptoms. And I think for many of us, if we understand the context of our experiences, what we've been through, maybe our trauma, our loss, our, our hurt, our heartbreak, those symptoms make a lot of sense. And I tell people a lot, this is probably very cheesy, but if it makes sense, it can't be crazy. And I'm uh, kind of a crazy expert. So a lot of us think, you know, we've got these symptoms and these things are going on in our life and uh, it must mean something really bad about me. And if we can make sense of it, actually probably doesn't mean anything bad about you at all. It just means that you are functioning as you should under this kind of terrible circumstance that you're finding yourself in. So, It's interesting you brought up if you were diagnosed with the flu, once you got over the flu and got better, you didn't still consider yourself someone who had the flu. Yeah. But mental illness seems to linger once mm-hmm. you receive that diagnosis. Yeah. You you carry that with you for a period of time. Yeah. So once diagnosed does not mean a life sentence to what you were diagnosed with. 
I mean, I think in most cases, like all things, we don't want to make a broad generalization that describes everybody's experience. We're all unique individual people. I think there's a lot more hope than we uh, think there is. Even if we have felt depressed for the majority of our life, somebody that really understands depression, really understands why you're responding the way you are to that particular circumstance, issue, need, whatever, if they can really get under that depression and begin to, to understand why you feel the way you feel, yeah, you've got hope. This doesn't have to be a lifelong thing. Desc- describe a typical counseling session. How does it begin? I'm trying to think of what typical looks like because everything is so unique. I, I want to know your story. You know, if you come into my office, I, I've i got papers I have to fill out, usually for insurance purposes or legal reasons or whatever. But once we get that stuff out of the way, I just want to know about you. I want to know what drove you to make a counseling appointment. Was your arm twisted by somebody that loves you? Were you desperate to get here? Did you need somebody to talk to? Where are we starting from? And even as somebody's telling me their story, I can begin to kind of pick out anchors and places that we need to return back to and figure out what did that mean? When you said that about who you were, you didn't feel man enough. You felt like you were unworthy, whatever that is. I'll make a note and we'll, we'll retrace our steps and find out why those statements happened. Yeah. Do you see, I'll call them clients. Mm-hmm. Can we call yeah. them clients? Yeah. <clears throat> do you think they're most often referred by a physician or do they just seek out when do you know that you need to seek counseling? Oh, man. I use this example a lot, so I'll use it again here. In the Every four years in the summer, we have the Olympics, and every one of these athletes are the, the top of their country. They're in peak physical condition. They've probably never performed better than they are in this season of their life, and every one of those athletes has a coach. So I think a lot of people wait until life is is completely desperate before they come in for counseling. Not everybody, but a lot of people wait. You know, statistically, marriages have been suffering for over six years before they reach out for help with a marriage counselor. A lot of individuals are like that, too. They wait until they're in dire straits before they ask for help. But I think a sign of health is actually asking for help while you're performing well, while life is going well, to stay well. And so I kind of see people um, from both ends of the spectrum, probably more toward the, the side that they've been struggling for a while. And, and this has become a necessity to, you know, reach out, get some help. Let's talk about the stigma. Okay. How do we get over that? I think we are. I don't think it's as, as difficult as it was maybe 20, 30 years ago to go to see a counselor. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, counseling is always going to be a little bit of a stigma, though, because it's vulnerability. What we're acknowledging something about me is uh, in need of attention, support, care. And, and I think, you know, vulnerability is always going to be risky. Vulnerability is always going to, to be taking a chance that if someone sees me uh, more fully, more completely, that they could reject me, they could laugh and ridicule, they could judge me. So... I think in that regard, I think counseling is always going to be a little bit stigmatized because we're going, and maybe going to certain doctor's offices is too, right? I, My wife and I struggled for years with infertility, and we went through some uh, pretty vulnerable procedures. And sitting in an office um, waiting to see a doctor, everybody knows why you're there, and it's kind of vulnerable. And in counseling, when you're sitting in the lobby and you're waiting to go in to see your therapist, People have a pretty good idea that something is wrong. They, they assume you're not there just to be coached or to be encouraged. Something's probably going on that you're talking about. 
So I think the vulnerability aspect makes counseling a little bit tricky and probably always will be. Is there a difference between embarrassing and being vulnerable? Hmm. I think you can... As far as emotion? Good question. I think embarrassment is tied to vulnerability or can be. I remember in junior high, there was a boy that got shoved out of our locker room in his underwear, and the girls' locker room was right across the hall. And he's banging on the door trying to get back in, and the guys are holding the door, and I'm sure he remembers that. But I, I remember just how humiliated I would feel if they had done that to me, and I was so grateful it didn't happen to me. But all the girls are coming out, and he's humiliated. And to be exposed like that in very physical ways is representative of the way a lot of us feel. We feel like if someone sees me exposed, they're going to be able to see my, my shortcomings, my my flaws, my wrinkles, my, you know, whatever. So I think, I think anytime we face exposure, there's a a potential for humiliation. And I, you know, Brene Brown, she's a a researcher and author. I'll paraphrase because she says it a little bit more colorfully, but she says, you know, where we need to be is in the arena. And if you're not in the arena, getting your butt kicked and you're in the stands, just judging and criticizing, you're in the wrong place. You need to get in the arena and so in the arena is where vulnerability happens. And that's also where we get, we find our courage, where we say, I don't care if I'm laughed at, I'm judged, I'm criticized, I'm ridiculed, I'm going to do what I was put on the, the planet to do regardless. And sometimes that's embarrassing. It is. <laughs> and we should probably do it anyway. <laughs> we'll talk about some of the symptoms. Okay. But let's talk about what should be healthy emotions. What are, <clears throat> what are normal everyday emotions so that so that we know that we're all sane. I am so glad you asked that. My answer is all of them. I think there are pleasant emotions and there are painful emotions, but I think they all serve a purpose. And I think if we if we start categorizing them as good or bad or healthy or unhealthy, we move into a really dangerous territory where we're saying if you're angry or if you're sad or if you are um, unhappy or uh, lonely, that those are bad emotions. And in reality, those emotions are indicating to me that something is wrong and that I need to take action. If I put my hand on a hot stove and I feel the pain of that, my, my body is now, I got a decision to make. Do I stay there in the pain or do I remove my hand and begin to, to get relief? <clears throat> and so I think um, when we feel these painful emotions, number one, they're telling us something is wrong, something we need to, we need to respond to. They're telling us, you know, if it's grief, uh, they're telling us that that person mattered, that relationship mattered, that circumstance was important to us, whatever. So I, I don't think we can live our life solely based on just how we feel. I don't believe that. But I think if we ignore the way we feel, those, those feelings often lead to thoughts, and those thoughts lead to behaviors. And so if we're, we're, we're saying, I'm going to ignore my feelings, and I'm only going to focus on my thoughts and behaviors, I think we miss a, a, a really important indicator. So I think of emotions as being like a thermometer and that thermometer is telling me the condition of my heart. And there've been times where I've ignored my emotions and I've, I've gone past my limits, what I can handle or tolerate. And then I found myself in either a short tempered state or I'm really frustrated or I'm burned out. And so when I pay attention to my heart, pay attention to what it's saying to me, then I need to adjust accordingly. And it kind of keeps me in a healthier zone. So... How do you know when it crosses that line to, okay, you're having a bad day, you're having a 
couple of bad days. Yeah. Then maybe you're having a couple of bad weeks and you you don't know if you're going to come out of it. Mm. You don't know if tomorrow is going to be happy. Yeah. You're kind of going to assume that it's not. Yeah, I've been there. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. So, how do you how do you judge when you know, life happens and it's just the progression of life and then when mm. you need to seek help? Hmm. You know, sometimes so that's a great question. And I, I don't know that there's a, a hard and fast rule like this is the absolute always answer. But number one, I think asking for help is always an option, always should be an option. Sometimes I look at people around me to reflect to me. I can't always tell how I'm doing as well as my wife can tell me. She's like, nope, something's different. I went through a really tough season over the last, this year has been hard for everybody. It's been hard for me too had some really dark months earlier this year and I started to come out of it a little bit and I didn't know, I couldn't tell. And my wife said, you're doing better. And I said, I don't feel better. And she said, you're laughing with our kids. I haven't heard you laugh with our kids in a while. That's different. So I think sometimes the people around us can be a mirror and they can reflect, you're doing better. Nope. I think you're, you're taking a dip. I think you, I think, I think this is maybe a little bit worse than you think it is. You know, if you get in a hot tub, the water's warm at, or really warm at first, and then you adjust to it, and then it feels just kind of regular. And so our emotions, sometimes we feel terrible, but then it becomes so normal, we just acclimate to it, and, it, and then we don't realize, no, I'm still in a really bad way. But people around us can give us that feedback. Of course, the way we're performing at work or the way we're you know, engaging with our family or at home, or if we start to see that things are beginning to suffer with work or with school or with the way we engage socially, if we're self-medicating, there's probably something inside our heart going on that we're we're not dealing with, and we're pouring alcohol on it, or we're you know pouring food on it, or we're spending a lot of time in front of Netflix or doing whatever to make that pain go away. And maybe that we don't need to make it go away so much as lean into it with somebody that knows what they're doing, get some help. You talked about how unique 2020 has been. I mean, has it been a weird year for you too? <laughs> I think it has for everyone. Yeah, isolation comes to mind. That, that We've all be, been isolated, yes. right? I mean, isolation is, to, in my thinking, is never good. No. But we've had forced isolation this year. What yeah. have you seen in your office yeah. as, as a result of this? Or how could you coach someone yeah. through feeling isolated yeah. and alone and not knowing you know, how long we're going to be in this stage? Well, and we're still isolated with these masks, right? Mm-hmm. I think I recognize, I was in a store earlier today, and I think I recognize somebody that I know, but I'm not totally sure because most of their face was covered. The other day I waved at somebody and they were not somebody that I know. (laughs) They lowered their mask and I was like, nope, that's not you. So we're still walking around a little bit isolated. Mm -hmm. Uh, This takes a really big toll on us. I think research says that isolation is harder on our physical body, not just our emotions, harder on our physical body than a lack of exercise or actually smoking cigarettes. This is, this is, it's not good. In the 80s, we learned, I think it was the 80s, maybe the late 70s, in, in China when we had the orphan crisis and there were all these orphanages with the babies and they were uh, feeding them and clothing them and sheltering them, but there weren't enough workers to nurture and hold the babies. And so these infants had a high mortality rate because they weren't getting the human connection that they needed went by that, that only happens through being held, that, that touch, that connection. They were failing to thrive. 
So as we get older, even though we don't necessarily have a high, immediate high mortality rate, it does shave years off our life. It shaves time. Uh, it shaves our, you know, our, our health down. And so what we've experienced in 2020 is sort of a polite societal solitary confinement of sorts. And it's even affected the work that I do. Most of my work moved to a telehealth platform. So a lot of my clients are now being seen through like a video conference. And it's, I don't, I don't prefer it. I like for someone to be live in the room because if someone is sobbing, I want to roll my chair over and put a hand on their shoulder or reach out and hold their hand if they're in a time of grief or trial. Men in video conferencing, I can't do that. So it's, it's been isolating. And, you know, even, even when people come in, there's sort of this unspoken anxiety. You and I had a little bit of it when we met today. Um, like, okay, I've been disinfecting. The room is clean. I want you to know that things are safe. There's this mistrust between us all. Like, I want you to know that I'm doing what I can, so I won't infect you and you won't infect me. And, and it's just really, it's creating barriers, big and small, between us. And so I, I worry. Like, what? And I don't know. I guess we'll know. It'll probably take us about a decade to figure out the repercussions of what 2020 is going to do to us as a culture. I hope we can hope we can get back. We went to a football game last night, and they had monitors walking around making sure you kept your mask on. And I, and I understand why. I'm not mad about it. But, man, it's just we're keeping barriers up, and it's keeping us isolated. And, and that is adding to our our struggle. I know. I was in... Walmart of all places, but I couldn't even, I was smiling at people Mm -hmm. behind my mask, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't tell that. And I couldn't judge their facial expressions either. And I think I miss, I miss the people being able to be cordial with one another. And, you know, you can always see expressions on people's face, whether it be pleasure or or displeasure, even in conversation. Well, but even if you get within six feet or, or, you know, closer or whatever, people are suspicious. Like before we were warm, like if somebody needed help reaching something on the top shelf, they didn't hate to ask, hey, can you hand that to me? And, And it just feels like we're all a little bit more scared. We don't know who's sick, who's not sick, who's... And even if I'm not worried about uh, the germs so much. I'm worried that somebody else is going to be upset with me if I'm not maintaining. This is just really hard. Like this year has already been hard enough if we had each other to lean on and depend on. What do you think are the bad habits that people are turning to because of isolation? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I I heard last week that the the rate of 18 to 24-year-olds that are considering suicide that have contemplated that, those numbers have increased. The number of uh, people overdosing on medications or illegal drugs, those numbers are increasing. I think we're just seeing people are, are struggling. We weren't, we're not made to be alone. No. If, you, if you go to the Bible in Genesis, in Genesis, the account, chapter 2, God has sort of done this thing where he's invited Adam. It's like take your child to work day. He invites Adam to be a part of creation. So he's bringing all of all these creatures to Adam, and Adam's getting to name the buffalo, the lion, the zebra. And as he's naming all these animals, he realizes, okay, every every animal has a complementary counterpart of their own species, but I don't. No, there is no one that looks like me that that complements me. And then, it, and I've, I've read this. I mean, I've read this for years. God says this really mysterious thing. He says it is not good for man to be alone. 
And this is this is in the beginning. Sin hasn't entered the story yet. There's no there's no fall that's happened yet. And Adam's not even living by faith. He can see God. He he has relationship and in perfect communion with God. And God still says, Yeah, it's not good for you to be by yourself. And then we meet Eve. And I, I think that was partially speaking to the to the relationship of marriage, but I think the greater message is is that we, by design as human beings, we are we don't do so great by ourselves. And even though God uh, serves a, a purpose in our lives, we also serve a very essential part in one another's lives by God's design. So cars don't run so great without oil. We don't run so great without connection. One of the habits that I think people have turned to, of course, is social media. For sure. And if we can, let's talk a little bit about the dangers of that. Okay. Because, one, we have some social issues Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, we've got a lot. Um, We're in an election year. And so people are being very Mm -hmm. vocal on social media Mm -hmm. because it's easier to do that on social media. But we don't have any other outlet because we can't talk to people. Yeah. So I think we have felt more freedom Mm -hmm. in expressing our emotions yeah. Whether that be agreement or outrage, hostility, hate, vengeance, judging, it's given people the, the freedom to articulate in a way that perhaps they wouldn't before. So if you're in that position right now, counsel someone how they would deal with that. Because not only... How they would deal with... with Navigating social the, media or, yes, navigating, or how to use but, the off button, <laughs> how to put your phone down, <laughs> how to put your phone down, yeah, yeah. but how to not react. Okay. And then to how to pace the emotions that social media is causing you to feel. Mm. Cause I think we're absorbing that. I think that's a brilliant way to say it. How to pace the emotions that social media is making us feel because it is. And I think it's I think it's designed and, and and the algorithm supports that because I think advertisers, social media uh, designers know they have to they have to activate uh, that part of our brain center, right? They have to con- continue to keep us emotionally engaged. They have to keep us stirred up and activated for us to continue to to scroll through that that feed. No one has ever convinced me of a political agreement by arguing or saying mean, ugly things about me. I, I made a joke a few years ago, and I'm not even... I made a joke on social media a few years ago. I think it was maybe during one of the elections. All of the, all of the female commentators on Fox News were blonde. And I, after, after watching a while, I just noticed. And I, just, I didn't make jokes about blonde people. I just said, hey, I noticed this is a thing, and... And I got uh, a lot of really interesting feedback. People were very upset. Like, I, I was making an observation, like, just anyway. I had someone ask me, when did I change political parties? Someone asked me how I could support abortion. I mean, the, the thing picked up speed. And what I noticed inside of me was then I started looking for other things that I could, I could use to defend my position and even criticize this news network further. And I don't even watch news networks. I'm not even a big fan of those because I think they do the same thing that social media is. They keep us stirred up. They keep us activated. And they want us to stay upset. But it's. I think I was typing up a status about something else to do with that news network. And, and I realized I don't even care about this. I don't care about defending them or, or criticizing them. What I'm really doing is I'm trying to hold, hold my space in this debate that somehow got 
created. So I deleted the status and I realized somebody, I felt attacked. I felt criticized, judged, whatever. And then I started to pull even further away from those people to build an argument rather than leaning in and saying, hey, let's, let, let's reconcile. Let's figure this out. Clearly, you didn't like the, the observation I made. I wasn't trying to be offensive. And so I think when we start arguing political arguments, I say, I don't like your candidate. You say, you don't like my candidate. Somehow then we become you know, critical of one another. And this thing creates a cycle. And, and when these, these cycles of conflict and disconnection are in play, we can't get to each other anymore. So the only times that someone has convinced me of a spiritual truth or a political perspective or a social argument is when they sit down with me and they want to know where I'm coming from. And they say, have you ever considered this? And I wonder what it'd be like if you looked at it this way. And in, and there on, in that middle ground of connection, I've had people get me to see things uh, that I wouldn't have potentially seen otherwise, but it didn't happen on social media it happened face-to-face over uh, coffee, in living rooms, on phone calls. But we don't have that now. We don't. So how can, how can we have a healing attitude? We know, yeah. we know there's an issue. We know there's a problem. Yeah. What is a solution? What is a healing solution to how we interact on social media? I mean, I... I all these things come to mind about how we should limit our time on social media and we should, and I know it's all true. We should uh, use more discernment and judgment and we should, well, I don't know that we're going to be able to, if that's only our, I mean, that's like, you know, I've grown up in church and when people assume that, that church is all about a thou shalt not list, they miss the whole point of, of what faith is about, which is, you know, relationship with a creator. And so I think in that same aspect if all we're doing is just saying the here's your big long list of don't do these things we lose people pretty quickly i think our connection is not going to happen online so i think we instead of instead of trying to reach for people um, over social media in 140 characters or less we really have got to figure out a way even in this this pandemic environment to to get to get in front of one another again of a teenager, and it's so weird. Uh, when I was a teenager, it, this was a George Jetson kind of idea that you could actually talk on a video screen, you know, to all of your friends or whatever. But that's how she hangs out in, in pandemic times when she can't go meet somebody and hang out at a coffee shop or wherever. She's got FaceTime going, and she's she's talking to her friends in group video conferences that way. I'd probably be more upset about it, but I want her to be face-to-face with her friends. I want them to see one another because if I am screaming and yelling in a crowded room and I begin to see the effect my words are having on people, I'll adjust quickly because I don't want to cause harm. I don't want to hurt people. But when I scream and rant on social media, I can't see the echo. I can't see the effect of what my words are doing to people. So then I'm not adjusting course. When I'm in front of somebody, if I'm talking too loudly or I'm being too aggressive and I see how they're reacting, then I begin to adjust and correct until I know until I can see that we are we are aligned again. And social media is just robbing us of that. So we've got to figure out a way, whether that's on a video chat while we're all kind of quarantined or finding ways. In my neighborhood, I've seen groups of people sitting in front yards. They've got their lawn chairs spread out appropriately and they're they're sitting out there, you know, just relaxing. I've seen a few Bible studies going on. I'm like, just people just trying to engage in and connect in the, you know, in the ways that we can. 
I'm going to switch gears here. Okay. If seeking counseling is the first step, yeah. what is the second step in maintenance? Like uh, once we've begun to make progress with counseling, mm-hmm. hmm. Hopefully, counseling uh, includes what maintenance looks like because I think it probably looks different for all of us. But a big part of our work is um, enjoying and and supporting and, and sustaining connection with one another. So uh, you can do you can go in and you can do all the work. Counselors are a surrogate relationship, basically. So people come to me, and maybe they tell me things that they've never told anyone before. Or they take risks relationally with me because I'm a safe place. And so ideally, because I'll tell people, I I want to help you get to a place where you don't need me anymore. This relationship should have an expiration date. So as they are are learning in in our offices what... uh, Healthy, re- healthy life looks like, healthy relationships look like, they begin to use what we are, we are doing with them to help them have better connection, better relationship, and that should be an outgrowth. So in our office, what our counselors do partly is, how do I take what I'm, I'm growing in, healing through here, and, and apply that? What do you see most of in your office? I think of three like what, big what things. Like what kind of issues? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think of depression. I think of anxiety, mm-hmm. stress, marital issues. What else is there? We do work with a lot of couples. We, you know, very sometimes I see only depression or only anxiety, but those are like usually things that I see together. So very few people come in that I don't think they've got some aspect of depression and anxiety. So. The work that we do oftentimes works with earlier life trauma or or even adult trauma. And trauma is kind of a, a big word. I have family members that are veterans, and based on you know whatever their level of experience was in the military, they may have what uh, a lot of people would describe as trauma, right? Like, I've been overseas, I've fought in a war. But there's other kinds of trauma that we can experience. And a lot of, uh, a lot of our clients, whether they have, you know, like something is... is classical, classically defined as trauma, like war veteran stuff, or a life-threatening thing, like they were in a car wreck that almost killed them or that maybe had some kind of bad effect. But then uh, there's other kinds of trauma, basic needs not being met. You know, if food is in uh, short supply and you don't know if you're going to go to bed with having dinner or if uh, there's a lot of conflict in your home or you know, various levels and intensities and frequencies of abuse, those things don't just don't just heal with time, and so what we find a lot of times is those earlier life experiences that that kind of created these markers, these these moments in your story. They're having an effect on who you are and how you relate to the world in the here and now. So part of our work is to go back and to address those wounds um, that haven't healed, create some healing, create some space. And then begin to see how, with that relief, that that affects and improves the here and now. So are you reprogramming to tell yourself a different story? Or how I mean does, that, yeah, how I does mean, resolving I think that's, trauma happen? You ever go get a massage and you had, like, I, I carry tension in my shoulders. And so when I when I get massages, they're always having to spend a ton of time on the top of my, my shoulders. And if I've got a knot there, if you lean into that um, knot for long enough, the muscle will relax. 
and then I can move a little bit easier. Sometimes, depending on, and of course, every trauma is different and every person sort of experiences trauma differently. But sometimes if you just lean into that and understand that pain and take somebody with you into that pain, you know, a lot of people have carried trauma alone for years. And so it's frightening to think about bad things that have happened to them. But with the counselor that's safe and that knows what they're doing, they can take take me, take one of my staff, our team in and and sit with them and understand what happened to them and begin to reinterpret their experience. We can't take away the bad thing that happened, but we can begin to reinterpret it and see and, and attach new memories, new experiences to that traumatic memory. Like I had a bad thing happen, but then somebody came with me and helped me understand it and helped me, he helped me not to be quite so afraid of that that event, that memory, that circumstance. Help me see myself, maybe not so much as weak, but as a survivor. And when we begin to change, yeah, the story, it, it absolutely has an effect on how we move forward. I know in my personal life, I won't get too personal, but there is there's still a trigger for me hmm. for anxiety. Yeah. And I could experience it every day if I... Hmm. If I did not recognize that it was a trigger yeah. and recognize it for what it was, yeah. I think it would totally shut me down. But wow. somewhere along the way, I had to, you know, I realized, okay, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is a trigger. This is a hot spot for me and mm-hmm. just work through it. So I wonder how many people are not cognizant of what their triggers are. First of all, thanks for being vulnerable there's jumping in the arena right (laughs) getting out of the stands and and even sharing that much right I felt it like I felt like okay she just went a little bit deeper it's risky now to answer your question I think I think all of us may know on some level maybe maybe not but you know like I got I had a bad experience with Doberman Pinscher dogs chasing me when I was walking home from school as a kid so I know whenever I see that breed of dog I get a little bit tense. My stomach will kind of do the butterfly thing a little bit. We might know the big triggers. We might think, okay, every time I'm in a room with a Doberman pincher, I feel uncomfortable or I feel sweaty or I'm looking for the nearest exit. What I think people don't realize is there are smaller, more subtle triggers activating events that that set us on a course of anxiety or, you know, fear or loneliness, depression, anger. And so our counselors at our office, that's where we come in. We, we help you slow things down and, and look really, really closely because for everyone that you recognize, there may be another 25 little triggering moments that you don't recognize. And so part of our work is recognizing those subtle detours that take you out of uh, you know, a state of peace of mind or, or, or security or confidence and being aware of those too. You just mentioned peace of mind, and I had in my notes, calm and peace. Is that something we should strive towards in our daily life? I mean, I know that you said we should have all the emotions, yeah. but what what should be in our resting conscious? What What is the, is it calm and peace that needs to override everything? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's a worthy goal. I, so I'm 46 and I'm having to get, you know, all the, the health checkups now and make sure that I'm it's so offensive. So they, they check my blood sugar or my blood for cholesterol. And apparently I have high cholesterol. 
And this year I modified my diet and have exercised more diligently than ever. And I'm saying this doesn't make sense because actually I'm eating healthier than I have. And they said, what's your stress level like? And I was like, oh, okay. My stress level over the last 12 months has been higher than it's been probably in most of my adult life. So I, I think at peace, stillness, a place of security, those are absolutely things we should strive for. And also, this is life. There's seasons where we're just not going to get a whole lot of peace and stillness and quiet. We have to fight and scratch and claw to, to carve that time out. So I'd say if you if you have it, celebrate it and 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 fight to protect and keep, you know, and not if we're peaceful and still all the time, I mean, that's called sleep and you can't sleep all the time, right? So, so maybe if we have that, we just, we, we practice stillness, we practice peace, we carve in times in our day where we are quiet and we're, you know, we just have that cup of coffee in the morning and we're staring out the back porch or we're doing things that we're, we're working in the garden. And then also know that there's going to be a time where we got to roll up our sleeves. We got to get out there because the world's not going to change itself. We got to, we've got to do the work that we were put here to do. I think busy and being mm, busy is agreed. more celebrated than being calm. Yes. The the busier you are, the more accomplished you are, the yeah. more you can get done in a day. Um, ugh. And you said the word busy, and I just felt my, I was just like, ugh, I hate that word. And I, and, and no, and it's the right word, but I hate that, that being our goal because there have been times in my life where I have thought, um, I was more important. There was more there. There was, I was so worthy because I was just busy and my schedule was just cram packed. And I mean, that led to burnout and frustration and just a disillusioned feeling about everything. So yeah, no more busyness. Let's get that out of our. Absolutely. Yeah. But that, that is considered a worthy goal. It is. It is. I, I don't, I wonder if millennials value busyness like us Gen Xers and what's the one above Gen X? Uh, baby boomers. I don't think Gen Z does. I think Gen Z has somewhat figured yeah. out. So maybe socially, culturally, as we're progressing through the generations, maybe it's not quite as busy. What is it? Baby boomers live to work and Gen Xers work to live. But I think even beyond after Gen X, I, I just don't, I think, I think they're not quite so. Let's give some. Let's give everyone permission right now. Let's do it. To be to be still. Be still. On occasion. Yeah. And gather your thoughts and find find a space where you know yourself. And if you don't, I mean, here's the problem. People come uh, to my office and they talk about how they have a hard time sleeping. And I'm like, well, tell me about the, the times in the day when you, you have a, a, just a chance to think. And they're like, well, I got this, this, and this, and I don't have time. And so when I lay down at night, my mind is racing. Well, yeah, your mind is trying to do what you never gave it an opportunity to do all day long. So if we carved out just a little bit of time, and you know, I mean, it sounds like 15 minutes wouldn't be, but 15 minutes sometimes is enough just to let your mind process and think about all the things that it needs to consider. Or maybe, you know, if there's a hard thing going on in your life, your brain just needs to be able to, to turn that over and, and consider it. And maybe that's enough. Maybe you don't need, even need to, to make an appointment with a counselor. Maybe what some people need is just to carve out some time to be still and let their mind do what it was designed to do. But we deny our own, our own functioning and we stay busy and we stay engaged. And I have this really bad habit now. I have a game on my phone and I play it while I watch TV. Now I'm doubly engaged in my mind. If I don't, if I don't, 
have intentional time where I'm quiet, when I lay down at night, my mind's going to say, finally. And then it's not going to want to shut down and sleep. It's going to want to do the things that I deprived it of. What has been the best success story coming out of your practice? Hmm. That's a good question. Are you thinking, are you asking like in terms of maybe like a client testimonial? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I have anything that comes to mind that's just like a a specific story off the top of my head, but I would say if, if I can help people just connect better to their spouse or connect more naturally and healthy, healthfully with their family, when people come back and they, they say, you know, we weren't in a good place and we're still, you know, just like everybody else, we have ups and downs, but, but we can, we can still be present for one another. We can still connect. Our marriage is okay. I've had a few people tell me that they might not be alive today if we hadn't done the work that we had done. That's pretty fulfilling. I am my own worst critic, and I, I go through periods of time where I wonder, have I helped anybody at all? Like, really, are they any better off, you know, two years down the road, five years down the road? And then every once in a while, I will hear somebody come back or I'll run across. Like, just when my discouragement is peaking, I'll hear someone say, you know, that, that season of my life, if you hadn't helped me through that period of grief, you hadn't been there, walked me through that divorce, I'm not sure if I could have done it alone. That's Do you think that it is because you are a relation? We are, like you said, we are made yeah. for a relationship. Yeah. Do you think part of the healing for people is, one, being able to talk about it, mm-hmm. admit it, and yeah. then have someone listen who is not judgmental and that yeah. ju- cares? Yeah. Do you think that is fundamental in the healing process? I think it's necessary for healing. I um, I really, I really work very hard. When people sit down for their first session and they they've got a story to tell me, I try to be as limber as possible because I don't want to, I don't want to stiffen up when they, they say and and then I had an abortion mm-hmm. or then I had an affair, or then I ran away from home. I don't want to be shocked uh, and and very. I say nothing shocks me, and then somebody says something, and it's shocking, and then I have to retract that statement. But I've heard a lot, and I can accept people on a lot of levels. We don't have to vote for the same presidential candidate. We don't have to uh, worship the same God. I can meet you where you are, and I've needed I've needed people in my life like that. I needed to tell my story, and I needed them to not be shocked or horrified or judgy. And I needed them to smile at me after I divulged that piece of information about me. Still love them. And still say, you matter. Your life matters. You are valuable. And um, I still see you as just as worthy of love and care and concern as I did before I knew about that mistake you made. And I think some counselors have gotten caught up. I'm in a couple of Facebook groups, and I've seen counselors debating, you know, if, if this... If I have a client who votes for Trump, then I'm just going to have to help them, you know, find another therapist because I can't do that. And that grieves me because... That's terrible. It's terrible. And it, it grieves me because if I'm only helping people that look like me and act like me and sound like me, that population is going to be really slim, first of all. And then I think we missed the whole point. I don't... Because we may all have different political views or social views, but our basic human needs are still really similar. We need to be loved. We need to feel like we matter. 
that if something happened to us, that somebody would care. We have needs for relationship. We have needs for belonging. And so when we can kind of move all this detail, this content out of the way, and just just be people, I, I think that's where the best work happens. Do you think people want to be understood? Very much. Or, <laughs> you know, they just don't understand me. Well, is it necessary that we understand, or is it necessary that we just love you regardless? Yeah. Because I don't know if anyone can understand exactly anyone's shoes that they have yeah. walked in. Yeah, and I'd say yes, both and. I think we really do want to be understood more than we want to be agreed with. We just want to be understood. So I don't have to agree with with everyone's personal choices or their values to still make sense of why they arrived at that conclusion and value it, value them. My kids, my, my teenager's old enough now, she goes to bed after I go to bed, but my eight-year-old at nine o'clock or so will say, Eva, it's time for bed. And she's maybe watching a TV show or she's playing in her room. And she may say, I don't want to go to bed. I don't, I've got, I'm still doing my activity. I'm still doing my thing. I'm not tired yet. I can understand what that's like for her. I can, I can still hold on to my value that it's bedtime because you're really grumpy if you don't get enough sleep. But I can also value and understand that she, because I've been there, she doesn't want to go to sleep right now. She, that's, that's not where she's at. I can understand somebody else's perspective and still hold on to my own. And I think we've forgotten that, not even just in America, but around the world. But I do think people want to be understood. They want to be, and maybe even better said, they want to be known. They want to be seen. They want somebody um, to understand who they are as a as a whole person and what motivates them. And they want to know that somebody gets the pain that they've been through. It is one of the, I mentioned our story with infertility. I, I don't want to talk about it all the time, but I sure wouldn't mind talking about it more often than I get to because that is our story. And it, 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 it spans about 15 years of my married life. And it, it took us to some of the worst places of, of grief and sorrow and pain. We had our, our oldest, and then we struggled for several years, went through miscarriage. Then we adopted, and then we tried to adopt again, and our, our, our second adoption failed. And so we've had sort of this, this dynamic, and it's always with me. And sometimes I would just like for somebody to sit down and just say, tell me about that. That had to be so hard for you. What was it like in your marriage? Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, it had to you. be so hard for you. <laughs> right, exactly like that. Because I think we all just want to, we, we just need a process. We need to, to share. And I would love for somebody to say at the end of me telling my story, I'm so, so grieved that like they connect with my pain. They understand my hurt. And then they, they join me in it. And now I'm not alone in that. And even though I can't change my story, I don't have to be alone in the details of that story that, that bring me sorrow, pain, whatever. So, and what was the other part you said? They want to be understood or they want to be I'm trying to remember what um, you just accepted. Oh, M- yeah. Maybe validated. And so I think even even more beautifully than agreed with, they want to be they want to be known and seen. And even if I don't accept or I mean I'm sorry, if I don't agree with everything they say. I can still say I accept who you are as a person. I don't necessarily have to accept all of the 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 things that are the, the details. That that's all extra. I accept you. You are worthy of being loved. 
I think it was so beautiful that you mentioned people want to be known. Yeah. But I think we have created an an environment and a facade that everything has become so superficial, whether it be social media, whether mm-hmm. it be television, mm-hmm. whether it be how you appear when you leave the house. Yeah. People often do not see past the face value of who you are. You're judged, okay, they look nice. You look like you have money. You look like you're poor. Yeah. And no one knows the story behind that you know I can put on a nice blazer Mm -hmm. and people will react to me very differently than if I just ran out of the house without makeup and went to Walmart in my PJs yeah and but none of that tells the whole true story of who I am what I've been through the experiences that I've had yeah and I think I think that's a deep I think you hit that nail on the head it's a deep need that we have to be understood and known and i think texting is and emailing and and all the ways that we have formulated to connect with people plays into that from the magazines that we read the influencers that we follow they portray a an ideal life that is not reality and it's not truth so let's talk a little bit more about that how how do we guide this generation to not be so affected Mm. by the visual aspects of life oh my goodness that is that might be the question of the day right i mean no pressure to come up with the answer for that how do we guide this generation i I think we just we've got to get back in front of each other again. But we are we are so we are headed towards more and more whether it be AI that I mean everything yeah. is is artificial everything is done yeah. for us everything is decided for us. We have we're we're suppressing our emotions. Mm-hmm. We are creating I mean you could even say we're suppressing technology. our humanity, right? I what? mean suppressing our humanity. Yes. Like we're we are human beings. We are not. We are not perfect. We get pimples, and we have bad breath, mm-hmm. and we wake up with pillow hair, and we try to portray ourselves in a way that we don't have any of those things. And and I like what you said about texting. There have been so many times I've had issues come up because I misunderstood the tone of a text. There's just for all of our all of our technology, it's just really hard to beat face to face human contact connection. It's just not any substitute for that, not any good substitute. And so the more, the more our culture kind of moves, our society moves in the direction it's moving, we, we just have more and more reasons to not, more and more distractions or more and more buffers between us. And for, for, as, for as many blessings that we have in so many ways, we just, we're just so unhappy. Most of us are so unhappy. You know, we, there's a, a comedy bit about a guy. He's like, you t- you know, you're flying however fast airplanes go and you're, you're traveling across the country and you've got a little air vent that's blowing on your face and someone's bringing you Cokes and, and in-flight meals and you still find reasons to complain. Everything is handed to us. We have, we have so much to be grateful for and we are so unhappy. And I think so how do we get there? I think, Besides- we, I think we look for happiness in the, the wrong things, right? Happiness is not in the latest iPhone. It's not in the, the vehicle. Or I look back when Tanya and I got married, we lived in Salisaw, Oklahoma. 
in a duplex that was two bedrooms. I bet it was maybe a thousand square feet, maybe not that. And we were broke and we were the our couch was somebody's college dorm couch, I think. Like all of our furniture was hand me down. And we weren't happy about being broke, but I have such fond memories. I can connect connect such warm uh, thoughts and feelings to that season in our life when we were we were so broke and just getting started and still how how fulfilled we were and that wasn't we didn't have actually we didn't have cell phones 20 years ago and so we didn't have all this technology and gear i don't even think we had a computer back in that little duplex we wouldn't have i wouldn't think yeah i mean we just we didn't need one so i just think we're we're instagram facebook you know network news all these things are selling us something that is nice I mean, it's fine but it's not going to bring the happiness the fulfillment the contentment the security that human relationship human connection brings so do you think there's no answer until someone comes to that realization themselves and gets themselves more vulnerable before people. Telling someone that yeah. they need to do this is one thing. You know, 80% of the population would agree that we need better relationships with people. But yet you have billions of people on yeah. social media, yeah. and that is their primary means of communication. We were doing workshops at our office until COVID uh, shut that down. We did one last one. I think it was in February, right before things uh, got really dark. We do uh, couples workshops, and we were in the process. We wanted to launch this year um, a workshop for parents and teenagers, adolescents. And these workshops guide you through a series of conversations uh, that are not, it's not just a hi, how are you kind of thing. It's actually helping you open up and, and create vulnerability, authenticity, deeper connection. Because if you can, you can, you know, establish the foundation, repair, build the foundation, then you can build up from there. And so these two-day workshops have been really successful in helping people do the thing that we're talking about here. Because I, I think we're we're so far out now. I don't think most of us have any idea how to do this. Well, how do you do it? Just give us just a little sample of what you would go through in your workshop. Well, we, we talk about the first conversation we guide people through. Uh, it's called the Disconnecting Dialogues. This is based on the work of Dr. Sue Johnson, who wrote the book um, Hold Me Tight. She's the creator of Emotionally Focused Therapy. And the Disconnecting Dialogues, you begin to recognize uh, the patterns that actually drive disconnection in your relationship. So when I do this, that makes you feel this way, and so you do this. And you, But when you do that, it makes me feel this way, and I do this. And every relationship's going to have a cycle. Every, every relationship's going to have a pattern. But if the pattern is sort of been flipped, it drives disconnection rather than driving connection. And so the first conversation is just recognizing the pattern. And we've all got it. Many of us, I'd say the majority of us, one one person in the relationship, and this works for marriages. It also just works for friendships. One person is more of a pursuer, and they are a they are they're the one that's going to be more likely to reach out and establish that conversation and start the connection going. and And the other person is more of a distancer or a withdrawer. And so these these two individuals are sort of playing a role here. Um, both are trying to sustain and protect the relationship. If you understand your your part in this dance, this cycle, and how you contribute to its connection or its disconnection, 
just being aware of where you on the map, where you are on the map, even if you're ten miles away from where you're trying to go, at least you just know how to begin to create a path to get back, you know, to home base. So we we help people through that, and then we explore. Go ahead. What if someone is not just not very open? I've had tried to sustain. This is just an example. Yeah. Tried to sustain relationships with, you know whether we were texting or, or engaging in conversation and they're just so, it's just surface level. Everything, absolutely everything is surface level. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. come on, give me something a little bit more open up. Mm -hmm. And some people just, I don't know if they're incapable of doing it or. Well, it certainly looks that way, doesn't it? Well, it makes, it makes you think I have, I can use my time better. Sure. <laughs> then trying well, because it feels offensive if they're not. If I'm putting all this effort out mm-hmm. and you're not even texting me back, you're not even returning my calls. So we believe that all behavior makes sense if you understand the context that's occurring in. So whenever we work with someone who is uh, really closed off or they're shut down, we believe there's a good reason for that. Now it may not it may not be ultimately helpful for them in you know healing a relationship. But there may be a reason why they are very, you know, shut down or, or closed off. And so what we need to do, first of all, is begin to understand why does being closed off and shut down make sense for you? Mm-hmm. And if we look at it like it's a, it is bringing them either a, a protection or a benefit or there's a, re, a good reason, um, and we validate why being closed off and shut down is working for you, then it's almost like an invitation for them to kind of come out of the turtle shell a little bit, poke their head around and then begin to maybe engage a little bit more. But a big part of our work is we call it, so that would be a person who meets the criteria for being like a withdrawer. That's not a diagnosis. It's just a term that that describes that kind of behavior, that kind of response. We want to re-engage someone who has been withdrawn. That's part of the work. And you kind of have to re-engage that particular responsiveness before you can move too much further. And in my experience, and I am somebody who tends to withdraw, if we had another couple hours, I'd tell you my story and you'd say, well, Ben, it makes a lot of sense why sometimes you just shut down and kind of retreat into yourself. The things that you've experienced, the things that have happened in your story make sense that there are, there are times where you just hunker down and you kind of ride the storm out. Does everyone do that to a certain degree? I think we're all capable of it. And, you know, when we tell this in our workshops, a pursuer and a withdrawer, that is not a personality type. It's not like, you know, you take a quiz and this is, it's a, it's sort of an adaptive style based on, a, on the relationship you have. So our youngest daughter, up until probably the last year or so, she has been more of a withdrawer response, just more uh, kind of quiet, keeps, you know, kind of hides into herself when she gets stressed. And over the last year or so, we've just been so careful with her. She has begun to kind of come out of that shell, and now she comes to us and she pursues connection. She, but in in our family, I tend to be other than her in these past few years. I'm the one that tends to shut down and and go away whenever I get upset. And I don't even remember what your question was now. Uh, if that is just somewhat normal for yeah, everyone. and so, but I think all of us under the right circumstances would would potentially you know withdraw, shut down, hunker down. It's a, it's a survival move. And so, and, and also I, so with my youngest daughter, there've been seasons where I have pursued her, even though I withdraw most naturally from other people, because if somebody's not reaching across the aisle in that relationship, then there's no connection at all. So 
And because she's my precious and sweet girl, I'm going to reach for her as many times as she needs me to until it's safe. She's ready to come back out of the shell. In a relationship, do you need a pursuer and a withdrawer? Is there ever times where that is a value? Like if you withdraw because you know you should not say what could be said. Yeah. And can you help someone that doesn't want to be helped? Well, I mean, I think we all have to take a little bit of personal responsibility. So, I mean, I, we can't force anybody to do anything. But, you know, like the danger of labeling pursuers and withdrawers is that we, we, we might tend to assume that everybody falls in one neat category or the other. And in reality, you know, most marriages or, or many marriages, the partners will change. They'll, they'll, they'll take turns wearing the different hats. So, you know, he might pursue connection in these particular ways and she might pursue connection in these particular ways. And so it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. And so I, in, in my marriage at different seasons, I have pursued connection when, uh, when she would tend to shut down and withdraw. Now, as far as the helping someone who doesn't want to be helped, that goes back to the idea that all behavior makes sense. We just got to understand why do they not want to be helped? And some people really just live with the reality or this this belief, this narrative that they're beyond help or even God can't help them or uh, they're hopeless. They're never going to be able to change. Not that they don't want to change. They've just tried all the ways that they know how to try. They've prayed. They've talked to counselors. They've talked to the priest, whatever. And they just feel hopeless. And so they've kind of given up that change is possible. Or, Or maybe they just don't think that people are all that awesome and... They don't want to let anybody else get in. You get hurt enough, you shut down. If you're hopeless, is that a symptom of depression? It is a characteristic of depression. It can be, yeah. Let's talk about depression. How many people in our society do you think are depressed? Oh, man. I think the statistic I read the other day was one in six are on psychotropic medications of some form or another. And I think the majority of those were antidepressants. So it's a pretty prevalent issue in our society. How do you help someone who's depressed? Hmm. Well, again, I'm just, I, I want to know their story. I want to know, uh, are they grieving? Are they, are they hopeless? Are they stuck? Are they, the thing I'm not crazy about is sometimes depression is almost like a, it, it's too broad of a term. And some people are stuck in a grief cycle. Some people are stuck in a trauma pattern. And so there's probably uh, as many people as there are out there, there's probably that many different ways that they could be arriving at that depressed, hopeless, you know, sad, withdrawn kind of place. So I really try very hard not to assume that everybody is like everybody else. And let's just unpack your story. Let's figure out what happened to you. What have you been through? Because life uh, just kicks all of our teeth in. On some, I mean, it just does. Mm-hmm. Life is hard. I remember being younger and hearing about people's stories and just thinking, oh, my goodness, that must be so hard to go through seasons like that. And now on this side of I'm not technically a young man anymore, and it's really hurtful. And <laughs> But, I mean, I just I've, I've had some of those you know, kick your teeth in kind of moments. I've got my own grief. So we, we've all got stuff. and Everyone um, does. Everybody does. 
And I think that's, now we're back to social media, but that's mm-hmm. the illusion is that all these people on Instagram with the perfect hair and the mm-hmm. perfect teeth and the perfect skin, and they live in these homes that really, it's hard to imagine. How can you afford that? You spend all your time on social media. But that is, that is only part of their story. That's only part of their truth. There's another part of their story that we're not seeing. The pillow hair, the bad breath in the morning, the, you know, the acne or whatever. So sometimes we suffer because of decisions and mistakes we've made. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we suffer because life's just stinking hard. That's a, I had wrote down guilt because mm-hmm. I think guilt is prevalent, whether you come from a religious background or, yeah. or not. Sure. Uh, because we're always dealing with should have. Could have. Why didn't I? Why didn't someone tell me? Mm-hmm. And it, if you just keep replaying that again and again and again in your mind, you don't you don't see your worth any longer. Yeah. All you see is what you did wrong, the mistakes that you made. Do you see a lot of that in your practice? Yeah, and I think. Trying to think of the way that I've heard uh, guilt and shame uh, distinguished. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am someone wrong. Or, mm. And I think a lot of us have guilt over mistakes that we made. You know, we made the best decision we could. Mm. We responded the best way we knew how in the moment, best we were capable of doing. And now, based on the outcome of whatever happened, we learned a valuable lesson mm. about what not to do, and mm-hmm. we don't do that again. So, so much of this life, this human experience is trial and error, and we just learn as we go. I think when what you're talking about probably in, in my, my language is shame. It's shame. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm bad. Like, mm-hmm. I, I made those mistakes, I did those things, and now they define me, and they, they describe me as a, a worthless, unlovable, despicable individual. And I think... I really do believe there are, there are people, they're probably unicorn kind of people. They, I don't know that they're in great supply, but there are people who don't walk around with shame. They just don't, that, that's not, I'm not one of those people. I, <laughs> I don't think I am either. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of us are. I, I will beat myself up for a while and then I'll let it go. Sure. But. And then I'll remember years later and I'll think, oh my goodness, why did I do that? What? But again, I can have regret over the thing that I did. Like, and I can just think that's a mistake I made. But shame says, I am bad. I, I am a person who does bad things. I am, I am unworthy. So I think, like so much, you know, we've got to identify and call shame out for what it is. Sue Johnson, the, the founder of EFT that I referenced earlier, I've heard her say, if you uh, can name it, you can tame it. And so a big part of our work in counseling process is if we can name the thing that's that's really getting to you now we can start to tame the thing that's really getting to you because a lot of us we are we are suffering and we are actually unaware of the primary reason why we are suffering like we are we think it's because of this and in reality it's maybe something deeper than that so putting our finger on it naming it's important let's talk about children attending school with covid happening hmm I've got two that are doing it right now. This is so unique. Yes. How how can we assist our children to to cope during this unusual time? Yeah. I know you already mentioned that you encourage your daughter to to FaceTime. Yeah. Well, I'm not encouraging it, but I am allowing it. You're allowing. <laughs> You're allowing. 
yeah. that what what can we all do and what can we what can we look for as far yeah. as danger signs in children mm. if that they're not coping they're not they're yeah. not handling it well yeah well, and fear i mean are they are we giving them fear yeah. by the precautions that we are making them yeah. take I mean, I would assume our, our kids are very confused and, and still trying to figure this thing out. When the when the coronavirus first was being talked about, and we are not big news watchers at our house, which is I I just it, it stresses all of us out. So we don't we don't do the twenty four hour news cycle thing. But our youngest, after she'd heard enough mentions of it on the radio and on the TV, she just starts stop saying that word. I don't want to hear that word anymore. It was frustrating her. And so I do think, you know, when the world shifts on a, uh, spins on a dime like it has, our kids are going to have questions they're going to need to know. I think a lot of times kids just, if we can create uh, reasonable explanations for them about what's happening, they don't need to know all the details. This is probably an odd comparison, but sometimes our kids will ask, ask a, a birds and bees kind of question, and we can over-explain. If, if an eight-year-old asks a question about where babies come from, we don't have to show them the, the Miracle of Birth PBS video on YouTube. We can just you know give them an explanation that is age-appropriate, and that probably satisfies their curiosity, gives them enough information for them to you know go on about their business. And that same spirit I think we can share with them enough. We don't need to quote statistics about, you know, the, the mortality rates and, and discuss how Republicans and Democrats are approaching this differently. And we, I think what we need to say is, here's what we're doing. We're taking precautions. We're going to make sure that you're safe. And if you get sick, we're gonna, we know how to get you help. And you don't have to worry about so much of it because mom, dad, grandma, whoever this, this child's person we got you. We're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure. And if you have any questions, we're going to be your source of information. So if I don't know, I know who to ask to find out. So I think if we can, we can prepare our kids and just, you know, say, here's what to expect. Here's what it's going to be like. Here's what to do. You know, if you're wearing a mask or whatever, I I think sometimes just creating safe explanations and, and, and not letting our child wander into the world and, and have to try to figure out and make sense of it on their own. I think that makes a big difference. Going back to the birds and bees example, so many people come into my office and the way that they learned out, they learned about you know the subject of sex or whatever was through some shocking video they saw or you know the way that some junior high boy described it, which was completely inaccurate. And how much how much better it would have gone for that child, that teenager, that adult, if someone had said, "Hey, by the way, you know what this is? This is what this is. This is." Uh, the context when this should happen. Here's what you need to know. And then they hear those weird stories in the locker room and they're like, that's not true, actually. Um, You should talk to my mom and dad. And so if we can do that kind of thing, even with COVID and just say, you know what, here's what it is. Here's what it's not. And if I'm wrong, I'll let you know. And and then we can create just a sense of security and safety that our kids don't have to worry about finding all the answers because they know that we've got them. So I talked a lot. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Okay, good. I'm trying to utilize our time here to hit on topics or subjects that people deal with every day. Okay. And I have to mention Alzheimer's. Okay. Because I do not know anything that can be as disruptive in relationship as Alzheimer's. Yeah. I just, I hear too much of it. I have personally experienced it Mm. with my mother. So, well, hers was front temporal dementia. Okay. But do you see a lot of people coming into your office 
trying to regain their composure, their their sense of life, and how would you counsel someone who is going through that? They're in the process of, mm-hmm. of that they have a loved, loved one, one who's in that, that. has Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and so that everything that had been normal to them is no longer normal, yeah. and everything is so uncertain. You know, if someone doesn't remember who you are, um, you don't have the shared memories. It's tough. I can think of so many people that I know in my life right now who are dealing with this, yeah. and it's devastating. Sure. And you probably know much more about Alzheimer's than I do in terms of the the disease itself. I mean, this is... Well, but I, I, know I will. It's hard. Yeah, and I think anybody who's got a loved one who's got some kind of chronic illness, and they're in each in each well, that's true. In each issue, that's, a, that's an excellent carries its own kind of unique set of dynamics and mm-hmm. struggles and and whatnot. And it's it's like a long goodbye, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So what I hear you describing is just grief, and it's like suspended, almost like a a, a limbo kind of grief where you can't get resolution. When my wife's uh, grandmother passed, I guess it's been almost two year, year and a half. She had lingered for a long time, and she wasn't well, and she didn't always recognize us. And it's just it it it's hurtful. It's offensive. Like this is it's so it, it takes away dignity, and it so there's grief, and there's confusion, and there's anger, and there's doubt, and. So when we work with people here, this is this is just grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, just grief. It's just grief. <laughs> just grief. Um, but but your the point you made was even healing to me because I it, it becomes so personal. Yes, it does. But if you have a loved one dying from cancer yeah. or dying from ALS or anything else, mm-hmm. I mean, really, your situation is not much different. Than theirs because you are. Yeah. It, it's it's grief. It's the loss of a loved one. So and I it, hope that helps someone out there today. <laughs> and, and let's encourage them a little bit more. I think the grief hasn't the grief doesn't begin when that loved one passes. Mm-hmm. the The grief begins when you get that first report that life's never going to be the same again. And I think the thing that's so hard with chronic illnesses is you don't you don't always have a timetable. You don't always have a. If I just knew you're going to suffer for about a year, and then it's going to be really hard, but then you're going to be able to start finding your way again, then I could sort of almost like uh, uh, budget my energy stores, my my emotional stores to be able to handle a year's worth of suffering. But sometimes. With chronic illness, it doesn't work that way. It might linger for uh, a year, two years, five years, ten years, and you don't know how much longer you can go on, but yet there's no real end in sight, and it just it takes a toll. And so we probably have somebody listening that has been going on this, this journey for um, longer than a year, and they're tired. And what they need partly is to just sit down with somebody and, and have an arm put around their shoulder let them tell what this is like, listen, just be present. I don't want them to be alone in this in this struggle. Talk. I think when you're the caregiver of someone talk to talk let's assume someone's going to yeah. be listening. Talk well, you're not them. alone. You're not by yourself. You're not the only one who knows what this is like. Sometimes there are support groups available. I don't think there's nearly enough support groups for all the the folks going through this kind of thing. 
but you're not by yourself. You're not, and I don't mean it like we're all tired. Get over yourself. I don't mean it like that. I, I mean you. You are in good company. There are there are wonderful men and women who are in your same circumstance. They're having to care for, or or be present with someone in this long goodbye process, or in this uncertain. I don't know if we're going to say goodbye. Sometimes we just we just have got to get outside of ourselves, and if we can't get out of ourselves, we need to find someone who will speak up for us and say, "Hey, you know." She is she is hurting, and she needs someone to reach in and take her by the hand. And even if you can't fix anything in her problem, at least you can hold her hand, and she doesn't have to be alone in it. So, if you can't ask for help, could you ask? Could you send a text and or or make a phone call and just ask if somebody could advocate for you and find you a, a friend, a supporter, a counselor? Let somebody else. You're doing the caregiving. Let somebody else show up for you. Okay, now can you speak to someone who might have suicidal thoughts? Mm. Yeah. First of all, if you are suffering and you have suicidal thoughts, you probably have been hurting for a while and you probably feel very trapped and stuck. So this is actually not uncommon. Many, many people at some time or another in their life feel like they have exhausted all options and they, they think that there's only one real reasonable uh, possible solution left to, you know, to deal with what pain they're in, what circumstance they're in. For many, many people, it, if they can weather this storm, the suicidal thoughts don't linger forever. So what we need to do is help you find options because the more options we can give you, the more the, there's less pressure on that suicidal action because you've got other solutions. You've got other opportunities to, to create relief. I think uh, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U S so you are not alone. I mean, this is, and I think the, a big lie that a lot of us believe is that we are unique. Our problems are unique and that, Nobody would really understand. And I have hurt so bad in my life that I wanted to die. I felt that kind of pain. I, I can relate to that. And those feelings didn't last forever. So if you don't have anybody else to call, <laughs> is it okay if I give my office number? Yeah, our number is 479-242-3200. And if we don't have somebody in the office that um, is available to meet with you for whatever reason, we will help you connect with somebody so you can figure this thing out um, because you're probably not going to solve this thing on your own, but the chances of you finding hope, moving into a place of healing and restoration multiply greatly when you partner with somebody else and let them help you figure this thing out. Okay. Now speak to someone who has been an abused child, whether physically or sexually. Hmm. I think the statistics are one in four females and one in six males are sexually abused before the age of 18. That's a high percentage of our population. It's awful. So 25% of women and 16% of men. And there's so much shame that's attached to this. So It's not normal. If there's a high percentage, but yeah, it is not, it's good. not an accepted yeah. or normal yeah, not okay. No, not what happened to you is not okay. Yes. And actually, we're really, we're really grieved and angry 
at what happened to you. And I want you to know that God is also very angry about what happened to you. That is not a wound that necessarily heals with time by itself, uh, but you can heal. You can move forward. And a lot of people who have experienced this kind of abuse in childhood, it is so shameful, it's so, so painful, they don't tell anybody. It's very common for someone to sit down with me and tell me you're the first person I've ever told that I was abused as a child. What I don't want is for you to remain, because this is not a trying harder. I don't want you to try harder and think, okay, I'm going to not think about it today. I'm not going to let it affect me today. I'm not going to let it affect my relationships today. I don't want you to keep trying hard. Let's apply, let's apply, uh, apply leverage in a different way so that you don't, you're working plenty hard enough. This isn't a try harder thing. If I break my leg, I can try really hard to keep running. But what I really need to do is treat the injury, and then I can get back to running. And this isn't just for um, someone who's gone through abuse. This is anybody listening. If you are suffering, if you are struggling, the last thing I want to tell you to do is try harder. You're probably trying plenty hard. What we need to do is adjust how you're, you're trying, what you're doing. Let's apply a different approach with the level of effort you're putting into it, and then we're going to see some, some movement. You know, a truck with its, its tire stuck in the mud, it can floor the gas pedal, and that tire is just going to spin its wheels until we get it some traction, and then it's going to move just fine again. Nothing wrong with the truck. We just got to apply a little bit different solution. So if you, if you are a childhood abuse survivor, whether that's physical, emotional, sexual, there is hope and healing for you. We just, we need to, we need to get you, you know, if I'm sick, I got to go to the doctor that sometimes the sickness isn't going to run its course on its own. I need, I need intervention. You just need, you may just need help. You may just need some, somebody to help you understand what happened to you, make sense of it, make sense of the way it made you feel, make sense of the way it made you see yourself. And listen, even if you, I think a lot of people, I'm trying not to go down a rabbit hole here. If you're an abuse survivor, some people don't even realize they are abuse survivors because they were manipulated or because someone took advantage of their innocence or took advantage of their ignorance as a child. They just went along with something thinking it was okay. And now they've got all this guilt and this shame and this regret. If you were, if you were able to think and act like an adult when you were 10 years old, you'd be an adult on living on your own with your own apartment. You're not ready for adult decisions. My kids would still, my teenager and my eight-year-old would still eat candy for dinner if we let them. They're not ready quite yet to be independent adults living on their own. So if someone introduces sexuality to you at a young age before you have any concept of the repercussions of that decision, that behavior, they are abusing you. It's wrong. It's abuse. So if you went through that and you have, that's left you with residue and guilt and, and shame and, and this ugly feeling about that bad thing you did, I would, I would say that may not be your fault at all. If my kids go to bed every night with a belly full of candy for dinner, there might be a little bit of responsibility on their part, but the overwhelming majority of the responsibility is on me because I'm the adult. I should be caring for them. I should be taking care of them and looking out for their well-being. So... I don't know. I just said a lot of words. Is that, is that helpful? People who have lost hope. Yeah. What would you say to them? And that can be, you know, severe depression, going through grief, but just they need, they need to hear that yeah. there is a time limit yeah. that it doesn't last forever. Yeah. And I know this is so generalized, but 
I think people today need to be encouraged. Yeah. And I think they need, um, like you said, they need to know that someone hears them, understands, yeah. knows what they have gone through. So just, just validate people and give them hope. Yeah. yeah. Because there is hope. And, you know, hope is dangerous. If you get your hopes up and then they're crushed, and then you get your hopes up and they're crushed, at some point hope then is um, this messy feeling that leads to, to disappointment down the road. So if you are hopeless, I bet it makes a lot of sense why you're feeling hopeless. You may have, you may have given hope a chance and it didn't pay off so well for you. So I don't know that being hopeless, first of all, is necessarily always a bad thing. It may be a survival thing. And it may be that you can't afford to really do much with hope in this season of your life. Is hope overrated? (laughs) Is hope overrated? I don't know. I mean, I think hope is, I think hope takes a lot of courage. I think hope is a messy, uh, tricky thing, but I definitely have had my hopes up and, and it didn't, it didn't pay off. Mm -hmm. And I have connected with that feeling of hopelessness. And, and then when someone wanted me to be hopeful, if people around you are bothered by your hopelessness, look at me talking with a chip on my shoulder for a second. Now, that may be their issue, not yours. Where you may be coming from is, I tried hope. It didn't work out so great for me. And so right now, I'm just not going to get my hopes up for a while. And maybe maybe there's wisdom in that. So I, that doesn't necessarily mean that the sun's not going to shine again. There's that verse in the Bible that says, Weeping endures for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Joy comes with the sunrise. I've never yet had a night that didn't end with the sunrise. Now, sometimes the sunrise didn't look the way I wanted it to, but the sun rose again. And some nights last a long time. I've never been to Alaska, but I hear that their nights can last for a long time, sometimes even months. Yeah. Couldn't do it. No. Yeah, that would be tough. So some nights last for a while. But the sun comes up. So I would tell somebody, if you're, if you're not really up for hoping today, I'm going to hope for both of us. You're, the sun will rise again. It just will. It's just a fact of nature. The sun's going to rise. And in the meantime, if you need to hunker down, if you need to uh, just focus on taking care of you, let's figure out how to do that. If that means that you're not, you're not being the social butterfly that you once were, if that means that you're having to be a little bit more low-key, if that means you're just having to be a little bit more cautious about who you allow in your world, I don't want you to isolate yourself entirely because that's not healthy either. But I bet the way you feel and why you feel it makes a heck of a lot of sense. And if, you, if you've been stuck there for a while, maybe it's time to, to get somebody's help who's, who's good at the, the healing journey, the healing process. And this isn't even a pitch for my, my counseling practice. You can talk to a counselor or you can talk to a, a minister um, or a wise friend or just somebody who's been in your shoes before and they, they are on the other side of it. So I'm going to have hope for both of us. And you hang in there. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. This was good. You've been listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be and listen to this podcast that will both motivate and educate. Thank you.